Three years ago, politicians in West Virginia added a line to their state constitution. That line said, quote, nothing in this constitution secures or protects a right to abortion or requires the funding of an abortion. In adding this line to their state constitution, West Virginia went way beyond what many other states have done to limit access to abortions, and even beyond a ban they already had on abortions after 20 weeks. Now the question is whether West Virginia and other states that are very, very red are going to try to do what Texas did earlier this month and effectively ban abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. My colleague Caroline Kitchener has reported on these types of decisions for years, but something stood out to her on a recent trip to West Virginia, that we talk a lot about the conversations happening in state houses, when for many women, the conversations happening in medical offices behind closed doors can also be life-altering. There's so much attention that we pay to the ways that the government and the courts can cut off access to abortion. But before I started reporting this story, I had never even thought about this other barrier that is doctors. Doctors who might not talk to women about the option of abortion. Even when the law allows it to be an option. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 15th. Today, what happens when an OBGYN is personally opposed to abortion and the risks that their patients could face as a result of that position. Caroline is a writer with The Lily. She went to West Virginia last year to report on a doctor whose views on abortion significantly influence his practice. And when I was there, I got to talk with a patient of his. So, Brooklyn, you want to just start by introducing yourself to us? Um, yeah, I'm Brooklyn. I'm 20. Brooklyn Stallnecker is 22 years old. She grew up in a small town, Bridgeport, West Virginia, which is about a two-hour drive from Charleston, West Virginia. That's the capital. Um, it's just a very small town. There's really nothing to do. It's one of the poorest parts of the state, which, you know, in turn makes it one of the poorest parts of the country. Brooklyn found out that she was pregnant when she was 17 years old. She was a senior in high school. She had a boyfriend. She was working two waitressing jobs, one at a Tim Hortons and one at a Little Caesars. When she took the pregnancy test, she took it at 2 a.m. because her shift working at Tim Hortons started bright and early in the morning because she was on the baking shift. And I didn't tell nobody. I just went to work. I was like really scared. I think I, I told my mom, I went to her house and told her, and she just told me it was going to be okay. And then I left it up to her to tell everybody else. And was she, like, was she supportive? And was everybody else supportive? Yeah, no one had anything bad to say. They were all just excited. So Brooklyn went to the doctor, to her OBGYN. The first couple doctor appointments were just kind of easy, going over family history, um, blood work, doing the heartbeat thing. They did all that. And then it came time for her 20-week ultrasound. And that's where they tell you the gender. They also tell you at that appointment about anything unexpected that they see on the ultrasound screen, including any kind of genetic abnormalities like Down syndrome or trisomy 13. They didn't say nothing to me during the ultrasound. And then 
a nurse came in and she said that they seen something. They don't think it was like a big deal. She didn't tell me what it was. Um, she just said that I would be going to the high risk center in Morgantown. They told her that she had to go see a maternal fetal medicine specialist. That's a high-risk pregnancy doctor, somebody who handles anything that would make you, you know, even at a slightly higher risk for a complication with a pregnancy. She goes to see a doctor named Dr. Leo Brancasio. He's in Morgantown, West Virginia. It's relatively close to where she is. She drives there with her mom, some other members of her family. And at that appointment, she hears some really, really bad news. She hears that her baby has polycystic kidney disease. The baby has no working kidneys and underdeveloped lungs. Hmm. What is the, what do you do in that scenario? Like, is there a treatment for that or any way to be able to help a, a fetus that is in that situation? Well, the prognosis can vary, but. In Brooklyn's case, it was a particularly severe form of polycystic kidney disease. And when she went into Dr. Brancasio, he told her, you know, there's there's no way. Your your baby is, you know, if it survives to term, it's going to die very soon after it's born. Oh wow. And what was the advice that Dr. Brancasio gave her in that moment? She said he told her that. In his professional opinion, it was not a good idea for her to continue the pregnancy. He explained that given the baby's prognosis, it would be unlikely to live more than a few hours after birth. And he told her that there could be risks to her health if she carried out the pregnancy. That was something that she really needed to consider and weigh seriously when she was making her decision. And, you know, Dr. Brancasio is not alone in making that sort of evaluation, I reached out to a lot of different maternal fetal medicine specialists while I was reporting this story. And they told me that they would advise a patient in Brooklyn's situation to consider termination. But one thing you should know about Brooklyn and her family is that they're all extremely opposed to abortion. She says that in that room right there, hearing that news, she did think about it. But even though there were going to be risks associated with creeping the pregnancy, and even though she knew the baby was almost certainly going to die, she didn't want to get an abortion. And she wanted a second opinion. So so where did they go to do that? How did they seek out a second opinion? So one of Brooklyn's family members went online, did a little research, and found the name of Dr. Byron Calhoun. Dr. Byron Calhoun is the only maternal fetal medicine specialist for most of the central part of West Virginia. He's also been the vice chair of obstetrics and gynecology at West Virginia University since 2006. So he is really well known in the state and around the country and honestly around the world. And the thing that he is known for is being a extreme, staunch, anti-abortion advocate who was also a high-risk pregnancy doctor. And just so you know, know, I reached out to Dr. Calhoun through every method I could think of in the reporting process. I sent him letters, I called, emailed. He wouldn't meet with me. 
he just didn't respond. But there is tons of tape of him online giving lectures. And that's what you're hearing in this piece. I see patients every day who everybody says, well, you know, you need an abortion. I said, why? Well, they said I have a heart disease. I said, so? What does that mean? Why well, don't you just do good care? I think you're more likely to die in the surgery for the abortion than you are with pregnancy, trust me. I'm doing this a long time. Before we go any further, we should say that the vast majority of doctors and medical professionals would disagree with a lot of what Dr. Calhoun has to say. I would say it is absolutely not true that abortion is higher risk than uh, um, full-term delivery. And for the- We spoke to four maternal fetal medicine specialists about this, including Dr. Mary Norton of the University of California, San Francisco. So when a pregnancy ends earlier, those risks are avoided. And in addition, the procedures that are used for pregnancy termination are very safe, and the risk to the mother of those procedures themselves are, are very low. That said, there are at least 4,500 anti-abortion OBGYNs who are public about their beliefs, who feel strongly enough about them to be members of an organization called the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. This is an organization that Calhoun was the president of for many years. It's an organization that says plainly in its mission statement, we believe that abortion will have no role or place in our practice of the healing arts. And I think it's worth noting that for the vast majority of women that we spoke to for the story, except for Brooklyn, Dr. Calhoun was the first and only maternal fetal medicine specialist that they were sent to because he's the only high-risk pregnancy doctor in this part of the state. And that means that the vast majority of these women had no option other than to get their counseling from somebody who is staunchly opposed to abortion. So what does it mean that Dr. Calhoun is an anti-abortion activist? So almost his entire career, Dr. Calhoun has been doing anti-abortion research. He is known as the founding father of something called perinatal hospice, which is this idea that the mother's womb essentially becomes a hospice bed and she should, you know, mourn the baby while it's still inside her. So hospice principles being moved before you're born, okay? If it's okay to do it after you're born, it's okay to do it before you're born. So rather than terminating, the idea is to see the pregnancy through to its natural conclusion, even if you absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt that the baby is immediately going to die or pass away even before it's born. Is that like a common medical approach or like a thing that other doctors would recommend? So it's definitely a controversial approach to push perinatal hospice in the way that we've heard Dr. Calhoun does. But it's also become you know probably more common than you'd think to at least provide patients with this option. The approach is offered as an option in hundreds of clinics and hospitals across the U.S., across, you know, really the whole world. So he's often called to lecture on this idea, and he will instruct doctors and nurses on how to implement perinatal hospice. So he talks about, you know, urging women to bring clay so they can make, you know, little little footprints of their baby, you know, even after it's passed away to bring pale lipstick so they Mm. can, you know, put it on the baby and make little prints of its lips, really 
doing everything they can to create ritual around mourning the baby, you know, even if it passes away within minutes or or hours. How did he come to have this be a part of his medical approach? He's deeply, deeply religious, you know, in, in, in everything that he writes about and everything that he presents about abortion. He is always referencing God. He's referencing the Bible. And so I can either throw my hands up and be like a lot of my colleagues, put my head in the sand, or I can be, as we've talked about, I can be like Queen Esther, which I will say. But he also has a personal connection to it. He wrote a memoir about his infertility. For many years, he and his wife were not able to conceive. They adopted four children, two of whom had special needs. One of them was you know, severely, severely impaired, was in a wheelchair. Her name was Faith. He talks about in, in his lectures how the doctors said, you know, she wasn't going to live past today. She's not going to live past tomorrow. She's not going to live to next week. Every 10 minutes after she was born, I mean, we got her as newborn and she's going to die in, you know, three weeks. She's going to die in a week. She's going to die in a year. She's going to die, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, the usual omniscient doctor telling you what's going to happen. Well, she made it to 27 before she died. And he would say, you know, she had an immensely fulfilling life. She loved the people around her and the people around her loved her back. Mm-hmm. He shows pictures of her at his conferences to show, you know, it's not that simple. So Brooklyn and her family go to this doctor who has this very specific and I would say probably controversial approach to thinking about hard decisions around pregnancy and terminating a pregnancy. What happens when they get to his office and and meet him? Brooklyn and her family drive, I think it's two and a half hour, three hours, all the way from their town to Charleston to see Dr. Calhoun. And the way Brooklyn described it to me, Dr. Calhoun gets all the papers out and he looks at the ultrasound and he says, you know, it's very unlikely that your baby is going to make it. But I have hope. Hmm. And then he told me, that he doesn't predict anything, um, so he wouldn't give me like um, a prediction of what would happen because he has seen miracles happen. And this is something that I've heard from other patients of Dr. Calhoun's. You know that he talks about how how he doesn't play God, and he has seen babies do crazy things over the years, and and he is not God, mm. and you never know what God is going to do. I can imagine that all Brooklyn and her family would want to hear in that moment is something akin to hope. Absolutely. Um, Brooklyn's family leaves that initial meeting feeling hopeful. they, They can see the baby being born and surviving. They start to buy bassinets and baby clothes. You know, her grandmother fills her room with diapers and baby lotions and things. But Brooklyn says that leaving that meeting, she doesn't feel the same way that the rest of her family does. You know, she she knew that her baby was going to die. 
I was just very freaked out about the day I had to give birth. I just kept thinking, my time is so limited. Like, they explained to me that she wouldn't, like, pass away inside of me. So I felt like just kind of like a time bomb. And then I have to give birth and I have to let her pass away. Well, and having had the other doctor tell her that there was a risk to her health if she carried on with the pregnancy, did she feel like kind of torn between this hope that Dr. Calhoun was offering her, but also this sense of possibility that like there could actually be risks to her if she went through with it? Well, she said that Dr. Calhoun told her there was no risk to her, no risk to her at all. Hmm. And this is maybe a good moment to say Dr. Calhoun is very public about what is an extremely controversial opinion, even among anti-abortion OBGYNs. My 25 years of practice, I've never found it necessary to terminate a pregnancy to save the life of a mother for an anomaly. I've had to deliver multiple patients prematurely and had babies die from prematurity, but I have never had to take the life of a fetus to save the mother's life. I think a provider that that has never seen someone in whom pregnancy termination is the only way to save that woman's life has a low volume, low acuity practice, I, I would say. That's Dr. Mary Norton again. Unfortunately, there are, you know, a number of conditions that women can, just can't continue, safely continue a pregnancy. And I've even had anti-abortion doctors tell me that Calhoun's stance is pretty extreme. Hmm. So even doctors who are against abortion understand that sometimes that there is a that the risks are so great that it needs to happen occasionally. Yes, that's medically necessary. But doesn't this doctor, Dr. Calhoun, like doesn't he have a requirement to be honest with her or at least let her know that there are risks here if that's what the medical establishment says? And doesn't he have a requirement to like talk to her about terminating her pregnancy just as an option? There's nothing that says that as an OBGYN, you are legally required to talk about abortion. What there is, is very strong medical guidance from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG. Um, that's the leading professional organization for OBGYNs. And their advice on abortion and what to say in these, these counseling meetings is very clear. They say that if a patient expresses or shows any sort of hesitation or uncertainty about their pregnancy, then the doctor needs to obtain informed consent. So they need to, in a way that does not display any personal bias, they need to lay out all the options and allow the woman to make a fully educated, a fully informed hmm. decision. And, and, and what ACOG also says, and I think this is important, anytime there's a high-risk pregnancy, you need to talk about abortion. Because high-risk pregnancies are more, there are more risks involved, hmm. obviously. And you need to absolutely make sure that a woman understands all the risks and all the options. You're also expected to discuss abortion with any fetal anomaly, even if it doesn't result in a high-risk pregnancy. But it sounds like that's just a guideline and not necessarily a thing that a doctor has to pay attention to. Yeah, exactly. Doctors have an incredible amount of freedom in the way that they decide 
to adhere to these guidelines or not. After the break, Brooklyn delivers her baby. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how was Brooklyn feeling in these days and weeks leading up to her delivery? Well, she went back with her family every week, and it was twice a week. This was not just a one-off appointment. She was continuously counseled up until her delivery. And when I talked to Brooklyn's grandmother, she talked about how they'd go back, and sometimes there would be something hopeful on the scans, and they'd feel newly hopeful. She had to have a C-section. She was terrified. And this is something, you know, the, the fact that Brooklyn was going to have a C-section, this is something that other doctors would tell you is especially unethical because a C-section is a major surgery and there are risks and there are implications for your future pregnancies and your body in the long term. And so to schedule a C-section with a baby that you know is going to die, a lot of doctors would say that that there's something seriously wrong with that. Most women who have a cesarean section do just fine, but the chance of that mother not surviving is higher than if she has a vaginal delivery. Here's Dr. Norton again. And then each of her subsequent pregnancies are now at higher risk because she has had this surgery on her uterus. And so what did her birth actually look like? Well, she came in for her C-section and, you know, one thing she talks about, she purposely did not pack anything for the baby. She just packed, you know, comfy clothes for herself and things to keep her occupied. Um, One of my biggest lifesavers was the granny panty underwear. Brought a bunch of those. I brought a pack of cards to play cards with my grandma. We always played rummy, so... I didn't pack anything for a baby. I don't know if my grandma did or not. Um, I know she packed one outfit, but I don't know what else she brought. She never showed it to me because she knew I didn't want to see it. She had the C-section. They pulled the baby out and they cleaned her up and they gave her, put her in Brooklyn's arms. And it was a girl, so I was happy it was a girl. Um, I remember her just blinking. So at that point, I was like, oh, like this maybe might not be like too bad because she's able to like blink. And then they took her over. They weighed her. Um, She was only five pounds, nine ounces. So she was a very small baby. And one of the NICU doctors, I think it was like, I can't remember his name. He came over and he was like, listen, like her heart rate's decreasing. Like, what do you want us to do? They said, you know we can give her back to you or we can take her to the to the NICU. And, you know, Brooklyn said, take her, take her to the NICU. They were forcing oxygen into the baby on a ventilator, but it just wasn't working because her lungs weren't developed enough for it to work. And they said, you know, there's, there's nothing we can do. 
this is the best that we can do. So eventually they all agreed to take her off the machines. My whole family was there. They were just like hovering over me on this hospital bed in this small room in the back. They were hugging me, like kissing my forehead and stuff. And then no one really said anything. What was it like for her in the days after her baby died? Well, by the time that Brooklyn got home from the hospital, all of the baby stuff had been cleared out of her room. Her grandpa actually went ahead of her and made sure that everything was put away. But she did have to stay home from school initially. She had to recover from the C-section. And I spoke with her grandmother who said that this pregnancy really affected Brooklyn's mental health. She describes Brooklyn going into a state of depression, becoming really short with everybody in her life and really kind of isolating herself from her family and and to some extent from her friends and just kind of shutting down. You know, Brooklyn would tell you that she's still extremely opposed to abortion. And as hard as it was, she feels like she did the right thing. That's her belief. Did she ever have a conversation with Dr. Calhoun as she was saying goodbye to her baby or in in the time after the baby died? Like, did he ever talk to her about the fact that he had given her this hope that didn't ultimately transpire? No. No, they didn't have a conversation about that. She did hear from him after the pregnancy, though. A florist shop called me and had actually told me that someone got me flowers. And I was like, oh, maybe just like someone from work or like school or something. And I went to pick up the flowers and it was from him in his office. So it sounds like Brooklyn feels okay about what happened to her or feels like she was grateful for the the time and attention from Dr. Calhoun. But I wonder what other doctors think about the medical care that Brooklyn got from Dr. Calhoun here. So like I mentioned before, we talked to several different doctors in the Charleston area for this story. And these doctors all express some degree of concern about the potential conflict of interest between Dr. Calhoun's role as a medical provider and his role as an anti-abortion advocate. Four of those doctors are OBGYNs who have to refer to specialists. And they all said that in certain cases where they feel that termination absolutely needs to be considered, they will not send patients to Dr. Calhoun unless they absolutely have to. So unless a patient absolutely cannot get to somewhere else, you know, cannot drive the extra few hours or, you know, whatever it is, they they try to avoid it. Doctors also said that they avoid... Um, sending any patients to him who need more advanced genetic testing. So if they need something, they need testing more than just an ultrasound. If they need something called an amniocentesis, they do not send to him because he often will not perform that additional genetic testing. And they suspect Calhoun isn't doing this kind of testing because it often leads to 
prognoses that are not compatible with life. And West Virginia is one of the most anti-abortion states in the country. So the vast majority of patients who see Dr. Calhoun who are not counseled about abortion, they're not questioning that. They're not being spoken to about abortion and they come away thinking, great, you know, I, I wouldn't have wanted to do that anyway. But that's problematic, these other doctors say, because there are risks involved and patients, especially with high-risk pregnancies, need to be fully aware of what those risks are and what all of their options are, not just the one option of carrying through with the pregnancy. There are OBGYNs who feel that they themselves would not do, do an abortion, but if a patient if that is what the patient needs, they can refer that patient to, you know, someone else. And I think those patients get perfectly good care. But I think that when a physician's personal beliefs preclude them from providing the full spectrum of women's health care and from informing women of risks or options for management of a pregnancy, that is enormously problematic. Why do you think this is an important part of understanding how women are counseled about abortion around the country? Well, I cover abortion. I've been covering abortion for years. I actually just spent two weeks in Texas covering this unprecedented law that has just taken effect there that has cut women off from the procedure after six weeks gestation. Those laws are what everybody is paying attention to. The courts, the Supreme Court, which decided not to intervene in this case, is what everybody is paying attention to. And they should be paying attention because this is this is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. And, you know, the closest that we've come since Roe v. Wade in 1973 to patients not being able to access abortion in this country. But reporting the story, I realized that there's this whole other invisible barrier to abortion that we don't talk about, we don't even think about, and that's doctors. It's about what they say and what they don't say. And I think we imagine our doctors to be objective. We imagine them to provide objective medical care. But at the end of the day, doctors are people. They're people with beliefs and values. And sometimes in situations like this, the values impact the kind of care that they provide. Caroline Kitchener is a writer for The Lily. Renee Svernovsky produced this episode with editing from Robin Amer, Maggie Penman, and Renita Jablonski. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>